We live in a world filled with distractions. Uh, I think of those distractions as three A's. We have things people want us to do, call it an advertisement, right? And the sheer volume of advertisements we get hit with every day is stunning if you think about it. Um, you pick up your phone in the morning, start scrolling through uh, Instagram or Facebook, and there are advertisements tailored to the things you've been looking at elsewhere on the internet. Right? Uh, you get up, eat some breakfast, head out the door to work, rolling down 65 or wherever you go, and there's a billboard while you're listening to the radio for somebody who wants you to buy a car. <laughs> it's everywhere, isn't it? Absolutely everywhere. And it's other people who want us to use the resources God has entrusted to us to do things that they want us to do. So distraction, distraction category number one, uh, things other people want from us or things people want us to do. Then there's our agenda, things on the calendar that absolutely have to get done. So we've got advertisements that can distract us. We've got things on our agenda that um, they don't feel like distractions, but we'll see in a little while that they can be. They've absolutely got to be done. We've got to go to work, got to get the kids to school, got to get to this doctor appointment, got to get to that thing over there. And we've got an agenda, a calendar, and it's just pressing and it must be taken care of. Uh, then we have our activities, don't we? And if things on the agenda are things that have to be done, things on the activity list are things we want to do, whether it's the uh, you know, hunting, fishing, sports, whatever, fill in. Those are all kind of guy hop activities, I guess. Ladies, you'll have to give me a list of good uh, things to use, uh, to use there. Um, but you get the idea, right? We've got things people want us to do, things that we have to do, things that we want to do, and all of those things make for really full lives, don't they? Really full lives. And it's not that those are bad things. In fact, most of them are probably good things. Uh, they can distract us from the most important things, but it's the good things that can be the most distracting, right? Because they're good. It's easy to say, oh, no, that over there, that's, that's, not a, that's a waste of my time. It's a bad thing. I'm not going to go there. But there are all these really important things that can be distracting from the most important thing. And we give ourselves to good things, and it begins to crowd out the most important things. So we've got to think about in life in terms of what's good and what's best. And the key becomes developing Christian maturity to help us think of all these different demands on our time, whether it's activities, agenda, uh, advertisements, all these things that come after us, and to develop the kind of maturity that bears fruit for moderation so that I can exercise spiritual disciplines with regard to all these things. So my phone is a useful tool for all kinds of things. Keeps me very organized. I can keep up with my mileage. And there's, it's just very helpful in a variety of ways. And stay in communication with people. But if I spend an inordinate amount of time scrolling through Facebook, then a good thing becomes a bad thing, doesn't it? Uh, it becomes a hindrance to fruitfulness and effectiveness and just really full human life. So how do we begin to develop the kind of maturity that it takes to be able to handle all the stuff that gets thrown at us? Because a lot of stuff gets thrown at us, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of stuff. 
How do we do that? If we ask Paul that question, I think he would tell us, and we'll see how this works its way out in the text, that what you need, brothers and sisters, says the apostle, is a deep experience of the all-surpassing value of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you have this deep, compelling experience of the all-surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, everything else begins to pale in comparison and gets organized in the right way. For Paul, in a world full of good things, knowing Christ is the best thing. That's the bottom line in Philippians chapter 3. In a world full of good things, knowing Christ is the best thing. Now, so we're talking about knowing Christ, and we're talking about things that kind of compete for time, so it shouldn't surprise us that Paul begins talking about hindrances to knowing Jesus well. So he issues a warning to the Philippians, watch out, beware of these people who are going to tempt you in a direction that's going to undermine your deep experience of knowing the all-surpassing value of Jesus. So he opens up this part of the letter. Apparently he said this to them before. Maybe when he was in Philippi, he issued a similar warning. Uh, but now he appears to be repeating himself. To write the same things to you is not troublesome to me. For you it's a safeguard. So whenever you hear your preacher repeating himself, just remember it's not troublesome. It's for your safety. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, he says, beware of the dogs. You get a sense of Paul's uh, fiery streak here, don't you? Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, and who boast in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too have confidence in the flesh. Reason for confidence. So these opening verses of this chapter are structured in a comparison, and we're wondering, you know, who are these people he's talking about? Dogs, evil workers, mutilators of the flesh. And you're thinking, man, these are some bad jokers, Paul. We wish you had told us their names. Apparently the Philippians know who they are. He's mentioned it before, so he's kind of alluding to a conversation they've had in the past. So the Philippians are privy to some information that we don't have. But there are some clues here that kind of help us put it together. Uh, Paul contrasts this group of dogs, evil workers, uh, mutilators of the flesh with, with, with the group of Christians that he's writing to. And he says, we're the circumcision, the true circumcision. So that suggests that maybe this mutilators of the flesh thing involves some other sort of circumcision. Um, what he's probably talking about here are Jewish followers of Jesus who want to insist that non-Jews have to follow the Torah to be followers of Jesus. Circumcised, food laws, right? Obviously, God gave Abraham this commandment about circumcision. Obviously, they would say God gave Moses the laws about food and sacrifices and all those kinds of clean and unclean and all that stuff that we don't read very often because it's confusing. Uh, surely the, they would say, if Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Jewish Messiah, that doesn't do away with all of our whole Old Testament, they would call it the Old Testament, our whole Bible. Surely if the nations are going to come into the people of God, they've got to live like the people of God and get circumcised and obey the food laws and stop eating barbecue and shrimp and things like that. It seems entirely reasonable, doesn't it? And Paul says, watch out for people like that. 
Watch out for people like that. And the reason is they take Jesus and want to pile other requirements on top of Jesus. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus the Mosaic law. And so they kind of create a Jesus plus religion, which implies what? That Jesus isn't enough. That knowing Jesus isn't enough. You've got to have this other stuff as well. And Paul has a full list of good things that he found ended up kind of getting in the way of knowing Christ. He's been in the camp. It's, it's interesting to hear him use such strong language because this is the place he, this, this was his party before he, got, before he met Jesus. So you got this crew of folks who sort of saying, Jesus is fine, but we got to add these other things on top of it. And Paul comes along and says, I've been there, and it can really be a problem. If you take a look at verse 4, you begin to hear what he has to say about this. Even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like the Bible says. I'm a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Right? I was born into the people of God. I'm a member of the tribe, uh, of the right tribes. I am a, a Hebrew. I'm, I'm a part of the right ethnic group. I'm a part of the right nation. I got all the right citizenship. My family or the family to be a part of. He's like, he's got a pretty good resume, doesn't he? And if he doesn't have, family connections are important, but he's got more than that. He goes on to say, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And if you've read Acts, you know that Paul was one of these guys who was deeply passionate about the religion of his forefathers, as it's called, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when the, these Christian folks came along and started saying, hey, Jesus is the Messiah, and everybody knows that this guy Jesus got crucified, and everybody knows that a dead Messiah is a false Messiah, so Paul's got to deal with, or back then I guess he was, uh, he was called Saul more, he's like, I got to deal with this. So he's going to go off and he's going to haul believers, followers of Jesus back to Jerusalem in chains, throw them in jail, press charges, and try to wear them out through violence and force. Right? If you want a picture of Paul before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, I mean, think in terms of the kind of Middle Eastern religious violence that you see on the news. That's what this guy is like. Right? He might have been on like the terrorist watch list. How does it make you feel to think that a former terrorist wrote a good chunk of the New Testament? A Middle Eastern terrorist wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. That's tough, isn't it? So, but it's, you know, he's engaging in violence based on his religious convictions. He's even there when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned and gave his approval to it. It's very similar to the kind of things we see on TV. When a group of Christians gets marched out on a beach in Egypt and has their lives brought to an end because they're following Jesus. It's helpful sometimes to draw dots between, to connect the dots between Paul's world and our world, even if it's stunningly uncomfortable. So Paul says, I was that kind of person. I was zealous and I would fight for the Torah, the Old Testament. I would fight for it with everything I've got. I was willing to kill for it. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. 
This guy's a serious player. You don't mess with Saul. It might not end well for you if you survived. As to righteousness under the law, who can say this? Blameless. Wow. (laughs) Really, Paul, tell us about that. Well, he would say, I did everything I could to follow the law with everything I've got. When I did break it, I followed the required sacrifices to make atonement for my, my disobedience. So he's not saying he obeyed the law perfectly. I mean, the law presupposes people will break it, and that's why you have, when you sin like this, offer this sort of sacrifice, and when you sin like that, offer that sort of sacrifice. So here's Paul, and he's saying, look, I'm born from the right people. I've engaged in the right kind of job. I've followed the law. I've defended the faith. If anybody's got confidence that God owes them something, it's me. (laughs) And then he meets Jesus, and he begins to reevaluate all these things in his life that he considered to be gains. That's what he calls them. Good things, positive things, things that are to his credit. And we've got to understand that Paul sees all of this as things on a resume that are to his credit. Right, family? Up and coming, political operative, defender of the faith, all that kind of stuff. These are to my credit, he says. I'm the right kind of person. Kind of person you want to know. This is the kind of person you want to network with, isn't it? He's... You'd rather be his friend than his enemy, that's for sure. And then he begins to reevaluate things because he met Jesus. And in verse 7 he says, I discovered that all these things that I considered to be very positive and very good in my life and very helpful were actually distractions. They got in the way. Right? It's not bad to be born a Hebrew. It's not bad to be from the tribe of Benjamin. It's not bad to be circumcised on the eighth day. Those are good. It is bad to kill Christians. <laughs> but you see how some of the things in the list are good things, aren't they? They're good things. And righteousness under the law. Obeying God meant the world to Paul. It should mean the world to all of us. <laughs> Those are good things. But when the letters on the page are the focus, instead of knowing the God who put them there, then they become a distraction. You ever meet somebody that maybe loved the letters more than the Lord? (laughs) And that's the kind of place Paul is at here. So, he is inviting the Philippians and us, to begin evaluating the things in our lives, even the good things, and say, you know, what's the thing or person that deserves my best? And the answer for Paul is one word, and you already know what it is. Jesus. In a world full of good things, knowing Christ is the best thing. And everything else pales in comparison when you know Jesus. 
But knowing Jesus means being very careful to resist Jesus plus kind of attitudes. That's what Paul is pushing back against. He uses his own life as an example of, you got to stay away from this Jesus plus my heritage, Jesus plus my obedience, Jesus plus all of that. It got me to thinking, how do we do? What do we add to Jesus? I'm curious, anybody got any? Here's a little interactive time. You don't get this much in a sermon. What do we do? Jesus plus what? What do we expect people to do beyond following Jesus? Anybody? Jesus plus serve. You are not a good follower of Jesus until you've taken a turn on the trustees, folks. <laughs> right? I think that's exactly right. And we do that to ourselves, don't we? We think that our Christianity is summed up. The substance of it is in our service. When actually our service, and service is good. Believe me, we want you to serve. <laughs> but it needs to flow out of a deep love for the Lord Jesus. That's a great answer. Others. I know it's a little weird getting invited to talk during a sermon, but hey, you know. Giving, giving yeah, that's another one, isn't it? How much do we give? How much do we serve? Others? How about uh, Jesus plus my denomination? Fill in the, which, whichever one you're in. Sometimes we treat people in other denominations like they're on their way to hell. <laughs> you know, Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians and who know, you know, Episcopalians and just the whole thing there. We kind of say, look, if you're not one of us, then we're skeptical of you. That's why I'm glad to see partnerships with Baptist churches to make sure the kids in the area meet Jesus. That says we're not adding things to Jesus, but we're looking at what sort of gospel partnerships we can cultivate beyond. So that's a good thing. But we do it, don't we? We do it, you know, we, you know with baptism and how churches are governed, but there's, there's the, the Bible isn't, I thank, thanks be to God that the Bible is not a document of church polity that looks like the book of discipline. That would be horrifying on Sunday mornings, wouldn't it? <laughs> but that's what we do. It's, it's this, if you're not one of us, we're, we've got questions about you. Here's one. Jesus plus political affiliation. This is where I stop preaching and start meddling, just in case you're curious. Um, it is very easy for Christians to assume that you can't be a Christian unless you share my political views. And if you don't believe me, look at Facebook. Because some of the most despicable, vilifying stuff and unholy stuff gets shared on Facebook from people who say they follow Jesus that in no way, in no way, in no way embodies the greatest commandment to love God and to love neighbors. Let me, let me just say this. The next time you're getting ready to hit share, stop and ask yourself the question, if I hit share, am I embodying love for God and love for my neighbor? I have friends who love Jesus and love the Bible and they don't agree with all my politics. 
And it baffles me. <laughs> but, it's, but it's reality. Uh, I've spent time in other countries, and I have dear friends uh, who are thoroughly orthodox, who believe every word in the Bible is inerrant and truthful in every way, and they're socialists. Crazy, isn't it? I don't understand it. But they read all the stuff Jesus says about taking care of the poor, and they read all the stuff Paul says about when I, the Jerusalem church sent me out, they asked, he asked me to care for the poor, and he said, that's the main thing I want to do. They see that as they have this civic responsibility to take care of the poor. And, so, and that, you know, it's tough for, you know, capitalists, <laughs> right? And I can sit in their living room and thoroughly enjoy their company and pray together and give thanks to God for their friendship and just realize that, you know, we didn't get any party affiliations in the New Testament. But we treat, especially, to, especially in the deeply polarized political environment we have in this country, right, we expect Christians to pick a side. We expect them to pick our side. That's what we expect. And when we do that, we are adding to what Jesus requires. Jesus plus my political affiliation. If you don't share my views, you're probably on your way to hell. Right? We're, we've been there. And I've already hinted at this, but social media just makes it worse. Just makes it worse. How it grieves my heart, friends. To see people that I know love Jesus post stuff on social media that is just unhelpful. Somehow we think that we, got, we have power in our keyboard. <laughs> we put it out there. Memes, you know what a meme is, right? A picture of somebody with some sort of like sarcastic remark. Sometimes they're funny, rarely are they helpful. <laughs> how tempted I am sometimes. And so watch out. The next time I share one, you can shoot me a message and be like, watch out, preacher. There you go. Um, but, but the invitation there is to think, right? And this is back to the, the original point, is there's all these good things out there. And social media can be used for good things to keep up with people and stay in touch. And just, it's, it, it, you know, in moderation, can be very, you know, can be good. But we begin to use it in ways that are very unhelpful, in ways that just make things worse, right? Let me tell you, friends, I don't know anybody who's ever changed their mind on any issue because of something someone shared on Facebook. I mean, let me ask you, have any of you ever changed your mind on anything because of something someone shared on Facebook? Right? Christians should be leading the way in this deeply polarized, just argumentative, and, and it's really painful I think we would all say it's painful to live in this deeply polarized environment where our elected officials are thoroughly dysfunctional no matter which side of the aisle they sit on. It would be stunningly beautiful for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to lead the way on substantive, holy, deep, reflective engagement on serious issues. Where we say, you know what? Instead of just flying off the handle and saying stuff that is probably overdone, 
what if we stop and spend some time reflecting deeply on what's actually happening? And what does it mean to obey the great commandment in this setting? And how does Scripture apply to the kinds of things we're dealing with? What does that look like? And instead of just sort of blasting everyone who doesn't agree and shoring up the base, what if we spent... You don't have to change your convictions to engage in someone with a, a discussion about something. Do we? I've got very concrete convictions. And I have civil dialogue with people who disagree with them regularly. And those are some of the best conversations I've ever been in because it actually, we learn something. We actually learn something. Uh, and it also is an opportunity to embody the kind of Christ-like patience, conviction with patience. That sounds a lot like Jesus to me. He's deeply, he holds his convictions deeply. The Lord, nobody holds their convictions more deeply than the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And nobody in the cosmos is more patient than the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you need a demonstration of that, you can look right at me. It takes a lot of patience from the Lord Jesus to put up with O'Reilly up here. I can tell you that. All of us are exhibit number one on the deep patience of the Lord Jesus. So what if, what if we stop doing the... You know, Jesus plus, you got to believe my way. You know, another one is the worship wars, right? Traditional worship and contemporary worship and blended worship. If you don't worship the way I worship, you're not really, you don't love Jesus enough, right? If you can't sing out of the hymnal, you don't love Jesus enough. If you can't sing off a screen, you're probably not full of the Spirit, right? None of that's helpful, is it? At all. <laughs> what about before they even had hymnals, right? You just had to memorize it. <laughs> Imagine if we did that. Let's just stop adding to Jesus. Let's just stop adding to Jesus, whether it's politics or denomination or worship style or wardrobe or whatever. Because Jesus alone is sufficient for everything we need. And that's why the Apostle Paul could take the most important things in his life and say, you know what, the most important things in my life, my activities, my agenda, all the stuff that people want me to do, all of those things, I thought they were good and helpful, but they really were distracting me from the most important thing in the, in the cosmos, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know how significant knowing Jesus is for Paul? He's willing to suffer to get it. Whatever gain, verse 7, whatever gains I had, all my connections, all my zeal, all my passion, all the stuff misdirected, whatever, whatever gains I had, these I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything, everything is lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So if you want a vision of how severely valuable knowing Jesus is, you take everything in life and you make one column Knowing Christ and everything else. Knowing Jesus is the most important thing. It is a surpassing value. It is a spectacular usefulness. It is the single most important thing such that everything else in the world, if it competes with Jesus, is a loss. 
everything. All of it, he says. He says, I regard every last thing in the world as a distraction, a loss, a hindrance, if I let it get in the way of knowing Jesus. Now, does that mean Paul doesn't ever do anything else? No. (laughs) It just means that he has a vision of Jesus that keeps everything else in its proper place. That's the key. Because there's a lot of good stuff out there that's useful and helpful. The trick is not letting good things take the place of the best thing. So he goes on. For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, all of my prestige, all of my power, all of my connections. He doesn't have any of that anymore. He's in prison now, right? He used to be the up-and-coming, zealous defender of the faith. Now he's, <laughs> he's a convict. <laughs> he's been thrown in a Roman dungeon. Why? For the sake of knowing Christ. You'll know the value of know, you'll know the surpassing value of knowing Jesus when you're willing to give up things that matter to you. For his sake, verse 8, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. And then he says, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what's the value of knowing Christ? Two things, Paul says, righteousness and resurrection. Why does knowing Christ take the place of supreme value in my life? Because he gives me two things no one else can give me. Number one, righteousness which I thought, Paul says, I thought I had, because after all, I'd kept the law. As far as as God's concerned, Paul obeys the law, is in good standing in the law. And he discovered later on that it wasn't quite that simple. He can't muster up any righteousness in himself. No matter how many sacrifices he offers, God doesn't owe him anything. And there's another righteousness, he says, a righteousness that comes from God, not from the law, not from obedience, not from doing the prescribed things that are in the book. He says, that's not where my right standing before God comes from. It comes only from God through Jesus based on faith, full confidence in him to do something for me that I can't do for myself. And you say, well, what are you talking about, Paul? He's like, The thing that I mentioned back in chapter 2 where he was a king, where he is God and he doesn't take advantage of that position, but he lowers himself and becomes a servant, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Paul was deeply persuaded and deeply convicted that the Lord Jesus Christ gave everything so that Paul's sins could be forgiven, so that my transgressions could be forgiven, so that all of our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to God from whom we were estranged, from whom we were far away. That's what this righteousness language means. If you don't have it, you're not in relationship with God. But when you do have it, you get it only through Jesus. Only through Jesus. Nothing else out there can accomplish this. Only Jesus. And that's forgiveness and it's right standing and it's reconciliation. And without the Lord, we don't have it. Jesus is of all surpassing value because he gives us God. And God is of infinite worth, power, majesty, glory, and spectacularness. That's not all for Paul. There's another R 
You don't have to invent this alliteration. It's already there. <laughs> Righteousness and resurrection. I've been talking a lot about resurrection on Wednesday nights. If you had not been a part of that, you're invited. Paul, you get a sense for how important resurrection is for Paul in this passage, right? Take a look at it one more time. Let me say this first. When he's talking, when Paul says, I want to attain the resurrection, we know what he means, right? Um, he's talking about when Jesus comes back, he expects Jesus to take his dead body and raise it from the dead. Not as kind of a nasty corpse thing walking around all over the place. Apparently, some of the folks he wrote to thought that may be what it would be like, but in a glorified state. Freedom from corruption, freedom from sin, freedom from death. What is that like? It's hard to imagine. Well, try to imagine a human body that never gets sick and never sins. That'd be pretty cool. I would love to have one <laughs> that never gets sick. I had a headache over uh, the weekend a bit. And I was, Those kind of days make me look forward to the resurrection. If you suffer from migraines, you can look forward to the resurrection. You know, if you suffer if, from cancer, look forward to the resurrection. What would it be like to have a body that isn't frail. That's what he means when he says, I want to attain the resurrection from the dead. All right? Human bodies that lack frailty, that are good and glorious and whole in every way. How important is that to Paul? This is how important it is. I want to know Christ. This is verse 10. This is an underlined verse. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Right? I want to know the power of his resurrection. How bad I'm willing to share in his sufferings to get it. The power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings. I want to know the sharing of Christ's sufferings by becoming like him in his death. What? Paul? <laughs> Are you a glutton for punishment? Have you lost your mind? Here's this guy who's saying, Lord Jesus, I want to know you so bad, I'm willing to die for it. And if you think about the sufferings of Jesus, it's pretty severe stuff. Crosses and nails and spikes and thorns and whips and spitting and mockery and false charges and false accusations and all those things that get wrapped up in the cross. And Paul says, Jesus, knowing Jesus is so big of a deal, it's so important, it's so magnificent, it is the most important thing. It is the, in a world full of good things, knowing Jesus is the best, and you want to know how best it is, I'm willing to suffer miserably and die to know him. And what does he mean? Well, he's in prison, and the Roman Empire may chop off his head, and if he caves and says, okay, no. Nah, Maybe I'm not as committed to Jesus as I've said I was. I can handle what you guys... If he kind of hedges his bets, he doesn't know Jesus. That He's showing that he loves himself more than he loves God. He loves his life more than he loves Jesus. He loves comfort more than he loves the cross. And he says, I want to know Christ so bad that I'm willing to lose my head quite literally. And friends, that blows me away. Because I can't, <laughs> I mean, how often would we be willing to say something like this, honestly, to God and to each other? How willing would we be to pray, Lord Jesus, I want to know you so bad, I'm willing to know you in your suffering.
That is about as heavy duty as it gets, friends. And it is convicting to your pastor who really enjoys comfort. <laughs> Just being honest. So we can do one of two things. We can play Jesus plus tradition, politics, whatever. Or we can play nothing but Jesus no matter how bad it hurts. And if we're willing to go there, brothers and sisters, you will find that the Lord Jesus Christ can do spectacular things in us and through us. And you know, Paul can pray that prayer because he believes so firmly in the resurrection. Right? Because even if Rome kills him, well, that's what happened to Jesus, and look how it turned out for him. He has the name above every name now, doesn't he? And all the suffering is temporary and short-lived, even if it is substantive. Paul understands there's a cross before the crown for the Lord Jesus, and there's one for followers of his too. Maybe not a literal cross, but some sort of self denying I'm not going to cave give myself to every comfort desire thing that I want I'm going to say no sometimes so that I can follow Jesus that is hard friends especially in a world where you're bombarded with advertisements to make you comfortable Philippians verse after verse after verse calls the people of God to unqualified, unconditional, thoroughgoing, comprehensive loyalty and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's one of those books where the most devoted followers of Jesus are going to come away convicted. <laughs> Thanks be to God for that. Because we can do one of two things with Jesus. We can play around with him, or we can follow him. We can kind of pretend and put on airs and, you know, play the, well, I serve, well, I give, well, I do all the stuff. Or we can give everything for the Lord Jesus. So we got to take a step, don't we? So we need to ask ourselves, and this is kind of where we'll pull it together. What are the things in my life that are good, but maybe they're a distraction? What are the things in my life that are they're good things, but maybe they're a distraction from really knowing Jesus in a deep, deep, deep way? This week, pick one of those things and give it up. Just for a week. Whatever it is, it could be different for every one of us. It could be, I'm not even going to say, whatever it is for you. I don't want to put ideas in your head. I just want to see what the Holy Spirit does. Just give it up this week. And take whatever time you would have given to that thing and give it to Jesus. Just go in a closet or a bedroom with a Bible and pray. It doesn't have to be a fancy prayer. Lord Jesus, this is time I normally would give to this thing. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. 
but maybe sometimes it, I give more energy to that than I do to you, so now I'm going to walk away from that and give, it, give my time to you. What is that for you? What's that thing? What, not, it's maybe a dozen things. Just pick one. <laughs> you can work on the second thing next week. But if we can do that, friends, if we can develop the spiritual discipline of discerning the things in our lives that are distractions from Jesus, then we can begin to work on that. And here's the thing. A lot of times you get those things back, and you get them back in a glorified way. Because when Jesus is the best, and when we see him as the best, the good things find their proper place. And we can really enjoy them more because they're not idols anymore. We can enjoy them more because they're not distractions anymore. So what do we need to say no to so that we can say yes to Jesus? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, your word confronts us in so many ways. Challenges us, convicts us, and it frankly can be painful and frustrating. But in our heart of hearts, we know we need it. We know it's good for us. And we know you want what's best for us. And you love us enough to deal with challenging things in our lives. If you just sort of patted us on the head and let us go about our, day, our merry way, it wouldn't be love, would it? You love us enough to speak to the things in our lives that keep us from the all-surpassing value of knowing you in a deep way. So draw our eyes to your face, Lord Jesus. Draw our passions to your passions, our will to your will, our loves to your loves, and let nothing stand in the way and let everything have its proper place in relation to your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.